everybody. Good to see you. You know what? It's songs like that, those those kind of those hymns that have been just reverberating in the church for many years. That I sing those lines, and I I'm reminded of how much I need to sing those lines, because you know after weeks like that we've had, um, like once again we're sitting here as a church on a Sunday morning, talking about another mass shooting, talking about all the pain that people are going through in our country and in our world. And um, I have to sing those songs. I have to sing those, those lines again. I have to be reminded that even though it seems like things all around us are kind of rusting away, um, that when these, there's, there's just seems to be there's like there's no relief from all these increasing displays of evil in our world. And um, I was talking with a friend the other day, and we were talking about what do we do? How can we fix this? How can we just solve this? And there was a part of us that was just just wondering, like, uh, I mean, ultimately this, I mean, it, obviously there's all these politics and legislation and things like that. But at the end of the day, when you mix somebody's heart and somebody might just be going down the road of nihilism, which is basically what nihilism is, is the existence, like that existence itself is senseless and, and useless. And, and, and all ultimate values lose their meaning. And you mix that with all of our culture. What do you do? And we pray and we mourn with those who are hurting and lost whole families. And, and we just urgently continue to pray, come Lord Jesus. And, um, and so as a church, we're going to do that. And I know a lot of you have questions about uh, how safe are we here um, at the Arvada Center. And we're probably just as vulnerable as any church, any school. And... Um, but I do want to encourage you today that, um, and some of you may know this already. I just wanted to know you to know, especially if you're new or you're nervous, maybe you're on edge a little bit about being in church today. We, we actually, the Arvada Center staffs security here that are always here. Um, may, may, that may make you feel comfortable. That may make you feel uncomfortable, but it is what it is. They've chosen to do that. And, and so, um, in fact, it's a very nice gentleman standing out front right now. Um, and so you can tell them thank you for being here. But let's pray and as, as we continue to mourn. God, we are um, we're at a loss um, as a people, as a nation, for what we're seeing happening so much more frequently. And God, we rest on your promises that one day you will make all things new and you will heal every wound and you will rid this world of evil. But until that day, we live in this in-between. And we pray, and we yearn, and we mourn, and we come alongside those who are doing the same. And God, show us a way, show us a way forward to love when there seems to be none, to bring life when there seems to be only the taking of it, and show us our way forward as a community. We pray these things in your name. Amen.
We have, uh, we're going to take our offering really quick as we have a few announcements that I want to share with you before we get started. Uh, all church meeting we're having today. So if you've got a few minutes afterwards, uh, you know, we got about six hours until the Broncos lose. And so you can kick it. You can kick it here with us. Um, you know, I'm sorry. That's just how it goes. Um, but we, we, we just have a brief 15-minute uh, meeting afterwards. We want to kind of share with you a little bit about where we're going and um, where we've been and a little bit about next year's budget. So we'd love for you to be here. Next weekend's our sixth birthday. So we're going to party how, yes, we are. We're going to party. Um, and we're going to do it how we always do it with food. So uh, we're going to have a whole huge pile of breakfast burritos here. So you got to get here. Um, just one. Just one for you. Okay. <laughs> Eli's all excited. I'm like, just dude. Pump the brakes. It's next week, okay? So, um, so birthday next week, um, family shelter initiative. I think we have room for one more meal uh, the week that we take care of uh, three homeless families over Thanksgiving week. So we'd love for you to be a part of that if you can. Um, Christmas Eve Eve service coming. Now, we have two needs volunteer-wise. And we have, uh, if you haven't met Janelle and Jessica next door, Children's is, they're doing an unbelievable job, and they're growing like crazy. So the increase of children means we need more people to help with Children's, and, and they will orient a schedule around whatever you need, but they need uh, some volunteers. We have some great kids, and they need some people. So talk to me. Go talk to Janelle and Jessica, or you can sign up on an info card. And the other thing is roadie crew. We set this up and tear this down every week, and it's a minor miracle. But uh, when we do, like the second week crew is in today, we just have a great time together. And this is a super great way, uh, guys, especially if you're like, I don't like sharing my feelings, uh, this is a great way to serve without sharing your feelings, you know? You can, you can show up, and we kind of have inside jokes, and we have a good time, and we always try to beat the crew last week. And So listen, if you'd like to be a part of that, uh, fellas, we need like three or four guys to jump in and be a part of that with us. So hey, um, over the last two weeks, and this is the third and final week, we are sharing stories. And um, I want you to, uh, this is the last one, but I want you to take a look at the screen and meet Lillian Donnelly, and then we're going to talk with her in a second. Take a look at this. We were brought up, um, we were Lutherans, so we were very conservative Lutherans, so that kind of shaped some of what we did uh, in church every Sunday, and um, that kind of shaped the morals of the family. My grandmother lived with us. My sister was 11 years older than me. So I guess for a while we were all in the same house. Well, a couple years, I really just kind of left. My parents were really conservative, so there was no dancing, there was no drinking. Um, I discovered boys, I guess. And uh, so I did things, I guess they weren't really ready to deal with a child that was in the 60s with all the things that were going on and the protests and things like that, and I kind of liked all that stuff. So, yeah, I, I went through a streak where it wouldn't be considered wild today, but it was considered wild then. After Melanie was born, about nine months later, I got married, and I wanted to, in retrospect, I wanted to get out of the house. He wanted the green card, so I guess it worked for both of us, and that marriage ended in divorce within a year. Then I met um, 
Bill, who was going to be my husband for 38 years. So I met him and got married, and that was my teenage years. I just remember Billy was maybe between one and two, and I was like, okay, Lord, now what do I do? I don't know how to be a mother. I mean, you know, I had my mom, but I don't know how to do this. You know, I don't know how to be married and kids. And so I, and I was going to church, but then my daughter was watching Magic Garden, I think it was, and 700 Club was either before or after Magic Garden, and I started watching pieces of it, and it was a different kind of Christianity than I'd ever known. I'd never known anything like that. I'd known Catholic, Lutheran, and Jewish, but I didn't know anything else. And so the church down the block from me was a Catholic church, and they had a renewal week, and I ended up going to renewal week, and that's where I um, dedicated my life to the Lord. I think I found a needle and um, asked him about it. And you know, like, when you find, when you're a nurse and you find a needle at home, sometimes you think, did I bring that home with me? Did I drop it out of my pocket? So we went through some different um, rehab things. We went through um, classes on the island. We went through some different stuff uh, to get him clean. And then he seemed to be clean for a while and he joined the guard. And so he seemed to be okay. He went away to boot camp. He went to training. He was clean, all of that. He came home. And then sometime after he came home, maybe a month or so after he came home, was when he overdosed at the house. And I got a call saying the ambulance had picked Andrew up at the house, that he had OD'd, and he was coming to the hospital. So I gave report really quick, ran down to the ER, was there before the ambulance came, and he heard a thump, and he went upstairs, and Andrew was not breathing. He was on the ground, so he knew CPR. He gave him the thump that we used to do. We don't do it anymore. And Andrew came back, and then they called, he had, they called 911. So my husband heard the ambulance call at the firehouse, and that it was his house. And so he came down um, and rode in the ambulance with him to the hospital. But as a mom, you always, I'll worry about him until the day I die, that he would go back to something. So I worry about him. If, so it was tough, it's really tough as a Christian to go through that and have your son be a heroin addict. Not too many people you can share that with. Um, can't really go to the church and stand up in church and say, would you please pray for my son who's a heroin addict? Doesn't really happen that easily. Um, so there was a lot of thinking, what did I do wrong? Did I do something wrong? Everybody, this is Lillian. We were brought up, um, we were Lutherans. Lillian again. Say <laughs> Lillian Donnelly, everybody. And uh, would you guys welcome Lillian up here? This is, uh, yeah. It's not easy to be interviewed, and so she thought about not coming, but that would have been an awkward interview by myself if you weren't here. Um, I met Lillian, how long ago did we meet? Yeah, you had to you okay. talk into it. Yeah, yeah, they'll work on it. Um, let's see, I will be here two years in December in Colorado, so I think I've been coming here a little over a year, maybe? A little over a year. And is her mic on? No? Yes? No? All the closer. There it is. Okay, is that close enough? And when we first sat down for coffee, like she couldn't understand my accent, Lillian, at all. <laughs> like she, she, I'm the one with the accent, right? 
Yeah. Yeah, that's what I, I did. You know, I made a video at work and I heard my accent. But I just came back from New York last weekend and none of us have accents. You thickened there. it up. Yeah, I know. That's... It, was, it was fine. They all understood me. Lillian's from New York and uh, she was back this weekend. And tell us what's so important about the bagel you had there. It was an awesome bagel out there. We don't have bagels like no, that here. No, it was huge. It had everything. I was in Brooklyn, actually. That's not where I was brought up, and they had really good Brooklyn bagels. Because when you're on Long Island, you get Brooklyn bread because it's good Italian bread and good right. um, bagels. So Panera doesn't really no, do it? Panera no. doesn't okay. do it. Okay, yeah. No. Just wondering, you know. So obviously we're at a loss here for bagels. Um, Lillian, you just have a, such a great story, and we didn't have the time to be able to put it all in one video, but I'm just gonna run through a little bit of your timeline. Is okay. that okay? And then I'm gonna throw some, throw, throw some things in there. Um, you became pregnant with Melanie, and um, then you got married. Mm -hmm. um, that marriage, like you said on the video, lasted a year. Mm -hmm. and, then, um, and then you were a single mom, kinda mm -hmm. on your own. Um, you met Bill, and tell everybody a little bit about Bill when you met him, what was he like? When I met my husband, I was working at a manufacturing plant. They wanted to hire a woman because it was a time when you had to get women. You couldn't just be all men. And so I applied there because it was a decent job. And, um, but you didn't know what you were doing, right? I didn't know what right? I was doing. Right. They said I had to be mechanically inclined. And if anybody that knows me knows <laughs> I'm not mechanically inclined. But I got myself a little toolbox, and I walked in there. And um, uh, Bill's boss, Harry, who I ended up knowing, said, you know what? She looked good. She was young. We'll take her. <laughs> and so they took me. Um, so I met, I met Bill there kind of by default. I really wasn't looking for anything. I was done. Hmm. And um, he was 12 years older than me. So when we did get together, you know, my parents were like, oh, no, here we go again. You know, hmm. something else is coming up. Um, he was uh, he was like my other half. He was totally different from me. He was very patient. He was very calm. Um, he was into hunting and fishing. I had no clue hmm. about that kind of stuff. Hmm. And so, um, I don't know, when we decided to get married, everybody was kind of like, you know, <laughs> how, long is, how long is this one going to last? It lasted 38 years, thank goodness. Yeah. So, and then you guys have Billy after that. So, uh, Bill adopts Melanie. You guys have Billy, and you'd kind of put your nursing school dreams on hold. Yeah, they weren't what? even really dreams. They, they, even were, <laughs> they were just they were just like, what were you going to be? You're going to be a teacher, or you're going to be a nurse. And I was going. My mother was a nurse. So I was going to be a nurse. Um, I'm the one that put the kibosh on that. My mother was like, well, I'll watch the baby. You can go to school. And I'm like, no, I'm going to. Mm -hmm. I'm going to stay home. I'm not going to stay home. I'm going to go work and take care of her. Right. So I wasn't even really thinking about it then. It kind of going to college was in the back of my mm -hmm. mind, but nursing school was totally out of my mind. Right. I was not going to be a nurse. Right. And then at some point, like you shared on the video, you kind of have this stirring. I mean, you grow up Lutheran um, and really conservative, and um, you have this stirring in your heart for some something bigger, something the spiritual side of it. It's just something you can't really explain. You're, you're watching TV. The kids are watching TV. The 700 Club comes on, of all things, and you're just like, okay, what is this? And, and then you end up going to a Catholic church. So it's, just like, it's almost like one of, those, um, one of those funny jokes, like two priests. And a, you know, like yeah, there's, so yeah. many, there's so many <laughs> things involved in your story yeah. to becoming a follower of Jesus. And, and, and along the way, you and Bill end up taking care of a mentally challenged older man that lives downstairs. Yeah. Um, I'm just doing a little overview. I'm not going to ask you too much about that. And then, and then at some point, you're able to pursue nursing again. 
And during this time, your sister gets diagnosed, right, with colon yeah, cancer? Yeah, my sister was diagnosed. Um, she was diagnosed probably a year or two before I went to nursing school. But my first semester in nursing school, she called me up and told me, um, she told me about her Billy Rubin, and she was telling me some stuff. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's back. Um, and I was trying to, she lived in North Carolina. I lived in New York. I had little kids. Andrew was still small. I couldn't get down there. I was taking care of people. But um, my sister passed away from cancer my first semester in nursing school, which is probably was a huge push that later on I stayed in oncology for 15 years. Mm. Yeah. And then Andrew is your youngest. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Andrew's growing up and doing life. And then he hits an age where, um, he starts to dabble in some drug use. Yeah. And um, you talked about in the, the video, you found a needle. Um, you thought, you're like, is this mine? Because <laughs> you're a nurse. And, yeah, you're pretty um, much in denial. You're pretty much in denial. Yeah. So you find, a, you find an insulin needle in your kitchen. You're thinking, oh, it must have been in my pocket because I have everything else in my pocket. Right. Um, and this was a real uh, season for you. And, and much like it is anybody who has a son or a daughter or a family member who's um, in addiction. And you're doing everything you can. You're putting him in recovery. He gets kicked out of recovery. He goes in the National Guard. He, he's probably fine during boot camp, but then he comes home. And he's home, and he's back, and he overdoses. You're at the hospital. Your husband's a volunteer firefighter, and he hears the call come through about an overdose at his house. What was that like? Yeah, it was, um, it was pretty scary. When Andrew started um, doing drugs and I realized he was doing drugs, the island was uh, just starting to be in the midst of a heroin epidemic and it still is in the midst of a heroin epidemic and we have our own epidemic out here. Um, so I didn't really know anything and I, I started learning a bunch of stuff. Um, when he came home, we thought that he was clean, and he was clean for a while, but what, what's happening, it's probably happening here too, and what's happening on Long Island is that people that are off of it and kick it, um, the first time they go back, it hits them so powerfully that most of them end up dying, and we had a bunch of people, um, I know a lot of people in, in school, in church, in the hospital in, in New York, and everybody's been touched in one way. Kids are in prison, kids have overdosed and died. Um, Kids are still on it. Kids are in rehab, in and out of rehab, and it's kind of a nightmare when you have mm -hmm. it. But when it happens to you, it's even more of a nightmare. I was at the hospital, and he's coming to my hospital, and my husband had to go to the house. Um, thankfully, Billy was home. Um, thankfully, Billy knew CPR. Um, you know, the Lord's hand was on all of that, but it's sitting, I'm in my own ER with my own family, my own son, and I'm saying, what am I going to do now? What, where else am I going to go, and what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. And um, this was just a, obviously a lot for you and Bill to go through together um, and it, for your whole family to go through together. I know brothers and sisters have different relationships with uh, Billy based on just yeah. kind of uh, trust and all those things. And that was just a few years ago. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. It was, um, I was figuring out last night if it was like three or four years ago. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons why you're out here is because Melanie's here. She lives here in Denver. And, um, but you're also out here because you no longer have Bill. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about Bill's sickness. I know some people know. Uh, I think a lot of the women know. Yeah. Um, so I'll just make it kind of short. 
So Bill had been um, battling bat uh, bladder cancer for years. It was all self-contained. It's probably going to be technical because I'm a nurse. Um, <laughs> Go for it. And, and then You're mechanically it, inclined. So. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, um, and then he had to have his kidney removed because it, it had gotten out of the bladder and it was on the ureter. So he had his kidney removed. So when he had that done, I kind of figured, yeah, we were on the road. Um, but... Um, we, we went through that. He was okay. And then um, my daughter was living in Wisconsin, and my daughter decided to move to Colorado. Some of that reason was because she thought her father would move here, is part of why she mm -hmm. moved here. He had talked about um, moving here. Yeah, because yeah. he had talked. He loved the West. He used to come out uh, to Wyoming every year before he met me. He liked the accents. Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. liked the bagels, yes, especially. Yeah, right, the bagels yeah. and pizza out here he really liked, yeah. <laughs> So um, in August of that year, my daughter moved here in August, and in August he started having pain. He started losing a ton of weight. Mm. And um, from August to, we came out here in September. In September, he could still uh, walk, I, although I did rent a wheelchair out here, which he refused to use, but we did get it. Um, but from, from August till January, I brought him home in hospice in January. So from August to January, he deteriorated in such a way that he couldn't walk, he couldn't move. He had... Um, an unusual number of tubes, and I, I brought him home to the house and hospice. I took family leave, and I came home, and I took care of him. I really had taken family leave about November, mm -hmm. and um, he came home for maybe a week or two in that time, and I took care of him. And we had a few crises in there, mm -hmm. but... So it was really quick. I didn't really expect it that quick, and we didn't have a diagnosis. We didn't have a tumor to look at, so we never got that diagnosis, and that's really what was frustrating because we didn't have the diagnosis, because I would tell the doctors, and there were like 11 to 12 of them, and I knew them all, because I worked with them all. I was like, you know, it looks like it, it's acting like cancer, well, how can you be telling me it's not cancer, you know? Mm -hmm. like, um, and so that was, that was pretty difficult to go through, but um, I kept telling him that's why he sent me to nursing school, <laughs> so that he now had a nurse to take care of him. And um, so we brought him home, and he was home for two weeks um, before he passed. You talk about uh, right after all the busyness of the funeral and everything, you got a chance to take three days, and you headed out to a bed and breakfast just by yourself. Yeah. It was a pretty powerful time for you. Yeah, I had stayed home. Um, I was on family leave because, believe it or not, I broke a pinky <coughs> while Bill was homesick. Um, we had some black ice one morning, which we never have, and I stepped out, and I couldn't work with a broken pinky because I work with patients. And so it got me on sick leave instead of family leave. So it got me some pay, but it got me time home. So after he passed, I had a couple um, weeks home that I didn't have to go back to work because I was going back to the same hospital. And I was going back to the same doctors. And I was going back to take care of oncology patients. Mm. So um, the Lord gave me that time. And I decided, you know, I, had, I still had um, my son still lived home. So I still had people home. So I took three days and I took, um, I took the guest list you know, that book that you sign, and I took every card that anybody gave me, and I took my Bible, and I went to bed and breakfast on the water, and I spent two days there, and I went through the whole guest book, and I prayed for everybody, and I thanked the Lord for everybody that came, and I went through all the cards, and I wrote down all the scriptures, and I just spent time before the Lord, you know, just because when you go through it, when you're so busy and you have kids and grandchildren, you're so busy comforting everyone else, you're so busy taking care of everybody else mm -hmm. that you don't really take care of yourself. And I knew I was going to need to take care of myself. So that was my gift to myself 
time to take care, time to center in the Lord so that I could go back to work and go back to the same place and the same hospital and the same people so that I'd have something to give out. Mm -hmm. And also to just kind of um, solidify my plans because, you know, everybody, everybody says, when you lose somebody, you're not supposed to do anything for a year, don't make any big decisions, don't do any big financial moves. I was leaving my job, I was leaving my house, selling my house. I've only ever lived on Long Island. I've never lived anywhere else. This is the first time I've moved out of New York, you know, mm -hmm. so you're not supposed to do all those things. And um, I did all those things. <laughs> and we're really thankful that you did. Um, one couple quick questions. Um, what does it look like to reflect back on your life um, in the ups and the downs, the good and the, and the really hard? And how do you continue to follow Jesus through all that? What does that faith journey look like for you? So I think I was thinking about that the other day. <clears throat> I came from a really solid background. I came from a background where I was taught the word of God every Sunday. I was taught to memorize it, although I'm really not good at memorizing it. So I was brought up in the word of God and in the real word of God. And so, and I, and I believe God was calling me and I just kept pushing him aside until I finally surrendered to him. And I had good churches with good foundation, but I think it's the word of God that gave me the faith. It's mm -hmm. always, you always go back to the word when something happens and you need to hide. <clears throat> For me, I need to hide the word in my heart when things aren't happening because, mm -hmm. you know, when things are happening, you don't have time to go back and, oh, gee, let me study Psalms and let me see what it says or let me see what the Bible says about mm -hmm. trust or faith or illness. Well, what does the Bible say about these things? When you're in the midst of that situation, somebody's sick, <clears throat> your kid is on drugs, whatever the deal is, you don't have time to go back and study it. If you mm. haven't read the word and hidden your heart, you don't have anything to draw on. Mm. And so it's always been the word that I've drawn on. And as I looked back through, um, I journaled sporadically, very sporadically, depending on the time of my life. But as I look back, there's all Bible verses. There's all Bible verses in it. Like you go through it. And there's Bible verses for when my father died. There's Bible verses for when Andy was uh, on drugs. There's Bible verses, a lot of Bible verses for when my husband was sick. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, it's the word, it's the word, it's the word. Mm -hmm. And going back to the word and who God is, God is faithful, God is sovereign. Those mm -hmm. are the two things that I hang my hat on mm -hmm. um, and will continue to hang my hat on. That's awesome. So your word for this year, you shared with me the other day, is fearless. My word for this year is fearlessness. Fearlessness. Yes. I've had a word of the year for the past four years. Right. And <laughs> where did that one come from for this year? And like, what are some of the ways you're being fearless besides sitting up in besides front of a whole bunch here. of people right now and telling your story? So um, <laughs> on New Year's Day, I took time to be alone with the Lord and see what word he wanted. Mm -hmm. I had heard somebody, I think it was on Focus on the Family about four years ago, say they picked a, a word every year. So it's like, pretty cool, let me, let me pick a word. My words have been, uh, last year my word was peace. Um, the word before that when Bill was sick was trust. So I don't really, the words come from the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. somehow. I mean, like he doesn't write mm -hmm. it on the wall or anything, but fearlessness came to me because I've never lived alone and it's mm -hmm. scary for me to live alone. Mm -hmm. You know, if I fall down the stairs, there's nobody there. Well, your cats um, aren't gonna help? No, I don't think my cat's going to really help okay, me. I think in the morning they might go get Barbara because I haven't fed them. So I think they, I think they might get out of the house and go over and tell her that this lady didn't feed me any wet food, but they're not going to really help me. Um, 
starting a new job. Hmm. So I was starting a new job is different stuff. So freelancers came to me because I do have a lot of fears, you know, and I need to get over them and, and the Lord has to help me, you know. Some are, I mean, and there's stupid little things. I don't like to drive at night. I don't want to go out once I come home from work and, you know, get my pajamas on. I don't want to have to go out to anything. I don't want to have to go out to Bible study. I don't want to have to go out anywhere. Um, <clears throat> I'm really scared of snakes and there are snakes in Colorado. So I, I'm taking horseback riding lessons and I that was a big thing Snakes for me Snakes and to do. horses are like a thing, though. Yeah, and I told her yeah, that when I like when I um, went to lessons. I said, you need to know two things about me. One of them is I'm afraid of the horse, number one, and and I'm paying for horseback riding lessons. And if I see a snake, it's, it's all it's over. Game over. <laughs> game is done for the night. Yeah. Um, and at work, there are different things I'm doing there that um, I get up and teach in mm -hmm. front of everybody. And I'm stepping out and doing things that I don't usually do. I don't like to fly, and I just came back from New York to present something mm. for the hospital. Mm. And I don't like to fly. So, um, so you're already really being fearless. So I'm trying. I'm well, working, we're, we're really glad that we can be a part of helping <laughs> you be fearless uh, this year. And you guys just um, let me pray for Lillian and just give her a hand when we're done. God, thank you so much for Lillian and her story. Um, we're just so thankful and grateful for a life of faith and trust in the midst of some really hard things. And God, we know there's been so many joys as well and so many joys in her children and her experiences and her husband. And We just ask that you continue to give her a fearlessness, a courage to continue to follow you in the seasons ahead. And we thank you for her courage this morning. Amen. Thank you so much, Lillian. Yes. Okay, very briefly, I have a few things to share, and then we're done. There will be no more singing today. Um, I'm just going to just finish this up. Um, some of you know that um, I, I generally try to kind of follow up an interview um, with a little bit of teaching um, I was reading a little bit. It was, it was hard this week. Um, you can ask Dan. I've been uh, wrestling with the things to say today. And I think one of the things I really want to lean into this morning is what happens when we follow Jesus. Um, Augustine, um, a famous scholar and philosopher way back, said, May I know you, may I know myself. Uh, a guy named Tom, Thomas, uh, Thomas Akempis, who was a medieval scholar and theologian, said this, A humble self-knowledge is a surer way to God than a search after deep learning. A little further down the historical timeline, you got a guy named John Calvin who wrote something called the Institutes. The opening line of the Institutes says this, There is no deep knowing of God without a deep knowing of self. And no deep knowing of self without a deep knowing of God. And then more recently, David Brenner, a writer, he wrote this. It took him a lot longer to say what Thomas Aquinas said. I mean, Thomas Akempis said, but he said this. Christian spirituality has a great deal to do with the self, not just with God. The goal of the spiritual journey is the transformation of self. 
This requires knowing both ourself and God. Both are necessary if we are to discover our true identity as those who are in Christ, because the self is where we meet God. Both are also necessary if we are to live out the uniqueness of our vocation. The reason why I bring all this up is that there's a link between knowing who we are and knowing God. A lot of times what happens in this Christian world is we just study, study, study God, and we miss actually on what God is doing in us and who we are and how we tick. In fact, I'll go so far as to say this. Our identity, so the who we are and our calling, isn't something we create. It's actually something we receive from our creator. So listen to this verse out of Matthew. This is Jesus calling the first disciples. It goes like this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were both in a, they were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed. That word called is an interesting word. In Greek, it's kaleo and it actually does mean called. But it's much deeper than, hey, come over here. You should follow me. It's actually this this bigger word that Jesus is actually inviting them to something different, something, some, some, some different vocation. We've talked about this before in the past that usually you would ask to follow a rabbi around. You would ask for that vocation of following a rabbi. And Jesus is actually calling these individuals to a new vocation a new way to live life. It kind of an, if, if you were to dissect this word in other places, it's actually an all-of-life commitment. And in Matthew 9, I'm not going to read through it all the way, but there's the calling of Matthew, the tax collector. And at the end of Matthew 9, it says this, On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Because Jesus is actually in kind of a a war, a little bit of war with some religious guys, some Pharisees that actually were questioning why Jesus would spend time with Matthew, who was a tax collector. And he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus actually uses the word sinners three times here, and he rarely uses that word. And he uses that same word, call. And so who is it that Jesus calls? People do have it all together? No. He calls all of us, the, 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 the broken, the sinners. Our brokenness and our sin is something that Jesus uses because something happens in the story of Matthew from becoming a tax collector to becoming the writer of what we have now, the book of Matthew. Something happens in that journey. And Jesus calls Matthew to do that. And it's kind of this idea from where, from who we are to, where, to who we're becoming is this journey that, that we're, we're invited to be part of. So really what I'm trying to communicate this morning is that following Jesus is actually a part of becoming 
the eternal version of what God wants us to be. That it's not just about a ticket to heaven, and it's not just about, um, you know, begrudgingly showing up at church sometimes. It's about Jesus pulling us into who he wants us to be for eternity. That's the journey of faith. That's the journey of this pledged fidelity that we talk about to the king we call Jesus. And here's the thing. I'll confess that there's, there's a lot of formulas out there and expectations. And if we end up adopting these little formulas and expectations about following Jesus, um, for instance, you know, these things can get kind of, they can get us kind of sideways. For instance, we have this idea sometimes that now that I follow Jesus, everything should just fall into place. Or now that I follow Jesus, I shouldn't be dealing with loss or pain or anxiety or fear or suffering. Well, let's look at the account really quick of in this, this last verse I want to look at is out of Hebrews 11. The writer of Hebrews is, is portraying Abraham and reminding us of who Abraham was. It says this, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place where he would later receive his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. You hear the word later in there? I mean, it's just down the road. He doesn't know where he's going, and he's living in tents, and it's something later. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, as he was good as dead, isn't that wonderful if someone said, you know, <laughs> he's as good as dead. And so from this one man, as, and he was as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. Isn't that beautiful? If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. But listen to this. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. See, with the calling comes a promise. With the calling comes a promise. This calling to follow Jesus about living this vocation of following Jesus changes, changes us, and there's a promise to it. There's something beauty, beautiful on the other side of it. And that's why stories are so important. That's why it's so important to hear everybody's story. Every single person in here has a story. Lillian's story is different than yours, than different than mine. But if you follow, begin, you see people following Jesus through pain and through devastating loss and debilitating health issues and following Jesus through uncertainty of, of everything that's happening in our culture around us, the gut punches that we get in life. The, if you just hear this, if Jesus is your king, then it's your vocation and your calling and it's the mission of your life to live as if Jesus is your king. 
and that the promises of God are true. This was written, as we'll wrap this up, this was written, this guy named Cyprian, 256 AD. And I want you to see this. This is what he wrote. Beloved brethren, we are philosophers, not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom, not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. This was coming at a time when almost all the Christian scholars out there were writing, and most of the things they were writing were about patience, about what it looks like to follow Jesus in the midst of the fact that everything around you isn't going very well, that people are against you, that there's suffering, to be a patient people, to be practicing patience, to be waiting, to be the kind of people that actually avoid the anesthesia of things that are difficult in life, that we lean in to actually be fully human is to fully feel like Jesus did and to follow Jesus. And my, my quick question for you is this. Is it possible that in this place, that in this church, are the kind of people and the kind of stories that become that could become the most important part, the, the most important companions on your journey to follow Jesus? Like, could it be possible that the people in this room, that the people you look around with and you see, they could be important companions on what it looks like for you to follow Jesus fully? I mean, that's our goal. That's our hope, is that this is not just a community where you come and hear someone talk, sing a few songs, and then go about your merry way. But this might be a community of companions that walk with you wherever your journey is, whatever you're uh, struggling with, whatever you are uh, fearful of, whatever you are facing as a person, as a family. That it's worth it to follow Jesus. And it's worth it to follow Jesus together.